plan for your life? Do you know where you want to go? Are you looking to be happier, healthier, and wealthier while having more fun every day? Meet our empowerment architect and goddess gardener, Cynthia Bryan, as she engages in energetic exchanges with success experts, bringing you research, innovations, strategies, and techniques to strengthen your life, business, and personal spaces. Be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and empowered. Lend us your ears right here on Star Style. Be the star you are. The party starts now. Well, hello, Power Partners. Welcome to our informational playground. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. We are coming to you live on the Voice America Network. This is the Empowerment Channel. And we are brought to the airwaves under the auspices of Be The Star You Are Charity. I am your host, Cynthia Bryan. Welcome to February. Tomorrow is Groundhog Day. We'll see what's going to happen, although I'm sure for so many people, it feels like Groundhog Day every day, right? Just kind of repeating itself over and over and over and over again. Well, today's show, we're going to talk about relationships and happiness, we're going to make some stock for soups, prune our roses, and also discuss inflammation and anti-inflammatory foods. The Miracle Moment for today brought to you by Be The Star You Are Charity. You can visit Be The Star You Are at bethestarur.org. And this is a quote from one of my very favorite authors, and I'm sure most of you have read Le Petit Prince. This is from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. It's the time that you spent on your rose that makes your rose so important. People have forgotten this truth, but you mustn't forget it. You become responsible for whatever you tamed. You're responsible for your rose. And of course, when he was writing this, he's not really just talking about roses. He's talking about whatever we love and whatever we create in our lives and relationships and tame, we are responsible for. And that brings me to the first topic that we are going to address today, and that is relationships and happiness. A group of researchers at Harvard spent 85 years studying health and happiness starting with an original group of 724 men, and then expanded that to more than 1,300 of their male and female descendants over three generations. And contrary to what many people might think, it's not career achievement or exercise or a healthy diet that makes people happy. The most important endurance uh, for relation for happiness was great relationships. Now, if you want to read more about the study, the Wall Street Journal in their review section um, in January actually did a very, very good um, article about it that was written by two of the authors who uh, conducted the study. And I just thought that I would condense it here because I do feel so... Uh, adamantly that the relationships that we create in our lives and the communities that we form literally are the basis of bring what brings joy to our life. So when it comes to understanding what happens to people as they go through life and, you know, how we look at our entire lives, 
the choices people make, the paths that they follow, and how it all works out for them. It's kind of sometimes impossible to to follow all of that, right? But most of what we know about human life, we know from asking people to remember the past. And um, naturally, memories aren't always accurate, and sometimes they're kind of full of holes. And the more that time passes, the more details we forgot. So this is why research shows that the act of recalling an event can actually change our memory of it. And um, I was thinking about generations when I was reading this study, because how long a generation is kind of depends uh, on where you're looking, but probably it's on your family. Um, They say that a generation is anything from 20 to 30 years because these days, more younger people are not having their children until late 20s, maybe early 30s. So that's why a generation could be 20 to 30 years. But it can differ as far as families go. But in this study, um, um, what they found was that they studied people from the time they were teenagers all the way to the time they were old in old age to see what really mattered to their that person as far as health and happiness and which investments really paid off for them. So as I said, it's 85 years and counting now that the Harvard Study of Adult Development tracked an original group of 724 men and more than 1,300 of their male and female descendants over three generations. They asked thousands of questions. They took hundreds of measurements. And their goal was to find out what really keeps people healthy and happy. And through all the years of studying those lives, one crucial factor stood out for the consistency and the power of its ties to physical health, mental health, as well as longevity. And it wasn't career achievement. I mean, a lot of people would think, oh, it's, you know, how much money you made, uh, the exercise, how far you went in, in your jobs or your careers, your healthy diet. I mean, all of those things are important and people think about it, but those were not what people responded to. The one thing that stood out was that good relationships actually are paramount. They keep us healthier. They keep us happier. And if you want to make a decision for your own health and happiness, it is wise to cultivate warm relationships of all kinds. So this Harvard study of adult development began in Boston in 1938. And there were two unrelated groups of researchers that began closely following two very, very different groups of people. So those groups were at least half of the young men. Well, first, I should say the first was a group of 268 sophomores at uh, Harvard College. And they were selected by Harvard professors. Um, Uh, of hygiene, which is interesting, because they were deemed likely to grow into healthy and well-adjusted adults. And at least half of those young men chosen for the study 
attended Harvard with the aid of scholarships and also held down jobs to pay tuition, while the other half came from very well-to-do families. Now, some of those well-to-do families could actually trace their roots back to the founding of America. Now, and 13% of them had parents who had immigrated to the United States. That was one project. Now, the second project looked at 456 14-year-old boys who were growing up in Boston's most troubled families. They were in disadvantaged neighborhoods. Um, they had you know, succeeded mostly in avoiding the path to juvenile delinquency. Uh, and more than 60% of those teens had at least one parent who had immigrated to, to the United States. Um, so their modest roots and their immigrant status made them doubly marginalized. Now, when the researchers decided to combine the two studies, all of the inner city and Harvard participants were interviewed. They were given medical exams. Researchers went to their homes, their parents were interviewed. And over the following decades, and again, we're going back all the way to the 1930s, right? So over the following decades, the teenagers grew up into adults and they entered all walks of life. They became factory workers, lawyers, bricklayers, doctors. Some developed alcoholism, some developed schizophrenia, some climbed the social ladder from the very bottom to the very top, and some went from the top to the very bottom. And the founders of the Harvard study would be shocked and delighted to know that it still continues today, generating unique and important findings they couldn't even imagined in 1938. So that Harvard study has maintained, and this is really impressive, an 84% participation rate for 85 years. So they followed the people in the Harvard study all the way into their 80s, and they looked back at them in midlife to see if they could predict who was going to grow into a happy, healthy octogenarian and who wasn't. So they gathered everything together and everything they knew about them at age 50. And it, they found that it wasn't their middle age cholesterol levels that predicted how they were going to grow old. It wasn't how satisfied um, they were with their work, but it was how satisfied they were in their relationships. So the people who were the most satisfied in relationships at 50 were the healthiest and mentally and physically able people at age 80. So if you are getting close to 50, look at all the people around you. Think about who you love and who you connect with and, and who you are in you know, a relationship with. Now, there were other long-term studies that are similar to this that have had similar conclusions about the powerful role of relationships. In uh, 2004, there was um, a study that tracked 3,720 adults in Baltimore, and they've been studying them since 2004. And what they found is that the uh, participants reported receiving more social support uh, and rep reported less depression because of their good relationships. 
And then a study following a representative sample of 229 older adults in Chicago since uh, 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 2002, 2002, found that people in satisfying relationships just reported higher level of happiness. And then there's also a study that was done in New Zealand, and that found that social connections in teens were better than academic achievement at predicting well-being in adulthood. So um, this is very interesting. The simple measure of time spent with others proved quite important because on a day-to-day basis, that measurement was clearly linked with happiness. On days when men and women spent more time in the company of others, they were happier. And in particular, the more time they spent with their partners, the more happiness they reported in the relationship. And this was true across all couples, but especially true for those in satisfying relationships. And then like most older people, those in the Harvard study, they experienced day-to-day fluctuations in their levels of pain, uh, both physical and mental. They had health difficulties. Um, Not surprisingly, their moods were lower on days when they had more pain. But they also found that the people who were in more satisfying relationships might have been buffered somewhat from those ups and downs of mood and actually some of the pain. Their happiness did not decline as much on the days when they had more pain. Their happy marriages or their happy relationships seemed to have some kind of protective effect. So that finding makes sense in light of the growing evidence that loneliness is associated with greater sensitivity to pain. It's also associated with suppression of the immune system, diminished brain function, and less effective sleep. And recent research has shown that for older people, loneliness is twice as unhealthy as obesity, and chronic loneliness increases a person's odds of death in any given year by 26%. So if you're feeling lonely, now there's a difference between being alone and feeling lonely. You really do want to um, get some help and figure out how to augment your relationships. So uh, the question kind of remains, how can loneliness be so physically harmful when it's totally a subjective experience? And answering that question is easier if we understand the biological roots of the problem because human beings have evolved to be social and the biological processes that encourage social behavior are there to protect us. So when we feel isolated, our bodies and brains react in ways that are designed to help us survive that isolation. So we have to think about, you know, the saber-toothed tiger thing, right? The fight and flight. Now, 50,000 years ago, being alone was very dangerous because an isolated person's body and brain would have gone into temporary survival mode. So the need to recognize the threats would have fallen on that person alone, on her stress hormones would have increased, would have made her more alert. But if her family or tribe were away overnight and she had to sleep by herself, her sleep would be showerer because she'd be listening for predators. And if predators were approaching, she would want to know. So she would be more easily aroused and, inspir- and experience more awakenings during the night. So it's the same thing that's happening 
today is if you're lonely, you're, you're just doing that whole, you know, flight or fright syndrome. Now, if that same person 50,000 years ago found herself alone for, say, a month rather than just a night, these physical uh, processes would continue and they would actually morph into a very droning, constant sense of unease and they would begin to take a toll on mental and physical health. And in today's parlance, we would say that's stress, right? And that would be called loneliness. So the same effects of loneliness continue today. The feeling of loneliness is a kind of alarm ringing inside our body. At first, it signals may help us. We need, you know, we need them to alert us to a problem. But if you lived in your house with a fire alarm blazing all the time, um, you would start to get a sense of what that chronic loneliness is doing behind the scenes to your minds and your bodies. So, of course, today we live in more complicated societies and meeting our social needs presents many different challenges. But you have to cherish any relationship that you have. And even if you don't see someone enough, if you can talk to them, FaceTime with them, how, ask yourself, how many hours do you think you spend with a person that you feel closest to? If you are 40, this is an interesting thing. If you're 40 and you see that particular friend once a week, let's just say for a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, that adds up to an equivalent of 87 days together before you turn 80. That's not that many days, right? Now, if you see them only once a month, it's only 20 days. So once a year, then it's like the equivalent of two days. So maybe these numbers sound like plenty, but contrast them with the fact that in 2018, the average American spent 11 hours every day interacting with media from television to radio to smartphones, you know, to the internet. But from the age of 40 to the age of 80, that adds up to 18 years of waking life. So for someone who was 18, that's 28 years of life before they turn 80. Now, um, we don't have to be with our best friends at all times. Um, in fact, some people who energize us and enhance our lives, it, they probably do so because we don't get to see them that often. So we have a lot to talk about and a lot to commiserate over. Uh, but sometimes we're compatible with the person, you know, only for a point, only for a short amount of time. And that's fine, too. We just have to learn how to adjust our most treasured relationships and have you know, real relationships, because those relationships will make a difference on how we feel, how we act, how we age, and our health. So over and over again, when the participants in the Harvard study reached their 70s and 80s, they would make a point of saying that what they valued most was their relationships with friends and family. So if we accept that wisdom, and more recently, the scientific evidence that states that relationships are among our most valuable tools for sustaining health and happiness, then I think it's up to us to invest that time and energy into creating better relationships. I'm Cynthia Bryan. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Stay with me.
Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Get autographed copies of New York Times bestselling author Cynthia Bryan's books at www.starstyleradio.com. Get inspired and motivated to be your best self with Be The Star You Are, 99 Gifts, and Be The Star You Are for Teens. Buy cases at a deep discount to give away as gifts and premiums. Visit www.starstyleradio.com or call 925-377-STAR. 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 Are you seeking a dynamo speaker for your meeting, conference, or organization? Internationally recognized keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author and lifestyle coach, Cynthia Bryan, will bring her energetic expertise, passionate professionalism, and ebullient personality to your event. Hailed as an expert in lifestyle, women's issues, self-help, personal balance, leadership, media, gardening, and interior design topics, Cynthia Bryan is a popular empowerment keynote speaker around the world. Lecturing to audiences of 100 to 5,000. For rates and bookings, call 925-377-STAR. 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 And visit www.cynthiabryan.com. When you want the best, book Cynthia Bryan. www.cynthiabryan.com. Are you a teenager with lots to say, but no one to talk to? Let your creativity explode and your voice be heard on the radio program Express Yourself, a show by teens, for teens, and about teens. No topic is off limits as you connect with teens with attitude. Check out Express Yourself on the Voice America Kids channel. And join our global community where teens talk and the world listens. www.btsya.com. You can express yourself. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. Well, we are back. Thank you for staying with me here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We're coming to you live on the Voice America Network. And I am Cynthia Bryan. And we are going to go into the garden for a little bit. Uh, because I, I obviously, you know, I am the goddess gardener and I like to spend as much time as possible in the garden every day as I was today. And after three weeks of tumultuous torrents, um, we've really exhaled a communal sigh of relief here because we've had a respite of sunshine and dry days. It is really cold at night, getting you know below freezing, but not as cold as in other parts of the uh, of the country. Uh, you know, it gets in the high twenties here. Um, standing water is thankfully penetrating the soggy soil as storm cleanups are underway. Uh, but the freezing night temperatures combined with the gale force winds, they've caused citrus to fall on the ground. And I've had just a couple of trees that I'm, I'm having to cut up now because they toppled as well. So if you did have any citrus fall, make sure to pick up the fruit to use as soon as possible. A refrigerator, whatever you can't use or whatever's not damaged, because citrus does go bad if it freezes. So you want to use it uh, right away. Well, 
we're hopping right into the year of the rabbit um, and it's heavy pruning time for my roses. I just finished today actually pruning my roses. And of course, ongoing weeding will be on my agenda all month, as well as dormant spraying of fruit trees. And since it is cold and damp and dreary, I am also finding myself in the kitchen creating comfort foods that um, have been nourishing you know, body, mind, and really warming the spirit. So in the winter, my vegetable garden and my potage, it prides itself with growing arugula and lettuce and nasturtium and, you know, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, Swiss chard, beets, carrots, parsley, you know, all those kinds of um, root vegetables, as well as lots of herbs, um, you know, all the different herbs, mint, oregano, rosemary, peppercorns, lemongrass, bay, fennel, and of course I have onions and chives. I am the absolute apostle for no waste meal preparations. So except for any woody stems that go to the compost pile, all parts of the produce are used in culinary creations. So what do I mean by that? So, you know, when you peel things, you peel carrots, you peel potatoes, you cut off the tops, you have scraps. What I do is I save all of this and then I make a really rich, nutritious tasty vegetable stock. Now, I, you could probably find recipes for stock, but for me, there is no set recipe because it's just bits and pieces that are always changing. And apart from the Allium family, I'm always, I always include garlic and onions. That is, uh, those are two important things. Those are critical to every batch. So the, when the stock is finished, it becomes a base for soups, sauces, stews, spaghetti. Uh, and you can even like, you know, simmer it down and use it to drizzle over your meats, chicken, steaks, whatever. But before you begin to experiment with making your homemade stock, be aware of a couple things. The leaves of potatoes, tomatoes, and rhubarb are poisonous, especially if ingested in large quantities. So don't use them in your preparation. Toss them in the compost pile. So when I say that I save every part of the plant and use every part of the plant, I don't, I don't use the parts of the plant that are poisonous. So again, potatoes, tomatoes, and rhubarb leaves are poisonous. So don't do that. So what do you need to, to do to make stock? So you would saute onions, garlic, leeks, or shallots and olive oil. You can chop up any fresh or wilted vegetables you have, including leafy tops and green stems. The ends of the carrots, the turnips, parsnips, pieces of peppers, and any vegetable you have on hand will do. So if things are starting to like wilt in your refrigerator or if you have them on your countertop and you think, oh, they're just past their prime, that's a good time to make stock with it because uh, they're really, they just add so much to, um, to your, the flavors. Now you can also add whatever herbs you wish along with a sauteed onion and garlic mixture. And if you want a meat broth, add meat or you could add the bones. The same thing goes with fish. You could add, you know, if you're doing... If you want like a seafood um, stock, a base, 
you could put the clam shells, oyster shells, uh, shrimp shells, you know, something like that. So um, then you want to simmer that mixture as it reduces. And the longer, the better. And really simmer. I just put it on low. I like to add um, wine for extra flavor. And then you can season it to taste if desired. And then you strain everything when it's completed. Now, you can use your stock immediately or you can freeze the extra. And it can be made in a slow cooker if you don't have time to watch the stove. Or it can be made in a pot in the oven. You just set your temperature 250 degrees and then just throw everything in. Um, I like to always add mushrooms and celery, fennel, ginger. Those offer an extra zing. And it's fun to experiment with your own uh, creativity. But this is just making stock is a fantastic way to use up your vegetables in your refrigerator that are past their prime, but they're still good and they're still, you know, very nutritious. So um, if you want to sear meats, bones or various alliums before putting them in the stock, you can do that. You can just brown them. So what browning does is it creates a kind of savory aromatic compound that lends a depth to the finished product. It's not necessary. So if you just, uh, you know, I don't usually do it. I just usually throw everything into the pot. But if I do have any onions or meats or things that I've already like, you know, sauteed, I can throw them in. So it, by skipping that, that browning part, your, your um, stock will be just a, a little bit lighter tasting, paler, but very delicious. It'll just be different. Now, as your pot bubbles away, you might notice like some foamy matter that collects at the surface of the stock, particularly in the beginning of the cooking, and there's nothing wrong with it. But it could make your end result look a little cloudy. So if you want to scoop it off, you know, just skim it with a slotted spoon, you can do that. It's, um, it's not going to take away from anything. But a good stock really requires patience, and it wants to be kept at a very gentle simmer, not a roiling boil. You're trying to extract the essence of the vegetables and any meat or um, seafood here. So you got want to think of it like steeping a pot of tea. If you cook it too hard, it's going to cause the ingredients to break apart into tiny pieces, and then it'll just be kind of murky. And then as the stock cools down and the water evaporates, leaving behind a smaller quantity of more flavorful liquid, after you've strained a batch, you can always return it to the stove and boil it, no need to be gentle at that point, until it's reduced to whatever strength you desire, because then just a few spoonfuls of this super concentrated stock could be drizzled over that steak that you want for a really luxe finish touch. Or you could toss it with pasta right at the end of cooking, and that'll make it real extra glossy and rich. So the bonus to all this is that reduced stock takes up less space in the freezer, and it can always be diluted to regular strength as needed. In fact, if you want, you could put your stock into an ice cube tray and just take out a, a cube or a couple cubes at a time to see, you know, whatever it is that you need. Now, um, when you when people are asking about bones or meat, meat gives your stock flavor while bones lend richness in the form of collagen. 
and that turns into kind of a sticky gelatin as it breaks down. And the best thing is you kind of want to mix. But for chicken, you could think the wings, the bone-in pieces, any of the carcasses. I usually, if I cook a chicken or a turkey, I just throw the whole carcass into a pot of water and I add all the vegetables and all the onions and the garlic and the shallots, you know, and then the bay leaves and all the extra, you know, mushrooms, etc. Now, um, some other things you could throw in there, the Parmesan rinds. And of course, I already talked about the herbs, but I really like lin uh, ginger and lemongrass. Now, I put in whole peppercorns, chilies, you can put whole dried spices, and bay leaves. Um, and you can add things just before using the stock in a dish. Uh, but we just remember, whatever you add, you're not going to be able to take out. So do you really need to add bay leaves? Well, I, I, I have bay trees, so I like them. And the answer is no. But I always do because they contribute a subtle, a very light, delicate, high note that otherwise could have kind of a bland flavor. You know how you make the spaghetti sauce and you always want bay leaves? Well, just steep a few in hot water, just like you would tea, and then try a sip. And you'll be surprised how much complexity these little, these little bay leaves make. I actually make bay leaf tea. And I add it with some alfalfa uh, leaves, and it's really very good. Um, so, it, you know, if you can use fresh, that is great. Now, that is how I make stock, and I just say stock up. Now, let me just talk about roses quickly, because although my numerous rose bushes continue to be prolific bloomers throughout the holiday season, um, the nine atmospheric rivers and that frigid nights have contributed to the demise of the new buds. So even though there were a lot of new buds on my rose bushes, they kind of um, mildewed or molded out. So as a Northern California gardener, I've always performed a heavy pruning of my roses in late January or early February. And I always detest having to prune flowering plants. So I procrastinate as long as possible. And because of the storms, this February really is the opportune month to prune. And when I say prune, I mean heavy prune, cutting them down two-thirds of, of your roses before the new growth begins. And that will allow you to shape the bushes while the plant is dormant, and it also prevents the spreading of disease. But before you begin pruning, you want to cut any buds or blooms for a final flush of flowers for an indoor bouquet. So I went around my garden, I cut all my buds and my blooms, and I made rose bouquets, which were beautiful. Now, if you're growing any Chinese fringe flower, you could add sprigs of it to your arrangement for a pop of cotton candy pink, or a few stems of early blooming daffodils for a sunny smile. You know, and again, we're hopping into the Chinese New Year, so that's why I bring up the Chinese fringe flower. Now, when pruning, always wear gloves and always use sharp, clean tools to make clean cuts. So secateurs, loppers, saws, you might want to sterilize between bushes because you can spread disease even when things go dormant. Um, you might want to use a hedge trimmer. It can be effective to shape the larger shrub roses or big groups of one variety or carpet roses. 
but they're not recommended unless you have a very large number of plants. So how you begin to do this, it's really simple and really you don't have to, you don't have to worry about it because it's all going to turn out. Roses are very resilient. So you begin by removing any dead, diseased, damaged wood or leaves. Then you remove the canes that are crossing or rubbing against each other, as well as any weak stems or canes that are growing from the base of the bush, because those canes aren't going to uh, produce uh, blooms, maybe a few, but not many. And what they do is they crowd out healthier growth. So to stimulate new growth, you want to open up the center of the bush. Then next, thin out the remaining canes, selecting the strongest and most vigorous canes. Keep only five to seven per plant, and then cut them back approximately to 24 inches, ideally making the pruning cut above an outward-facing bud and a slight angle to encourage the new growth to emerge in that direction. But again, it's not crucial, and it's not going to hurt your rose if you don't do it. It's just a best practice. Now, after pruning, remove any remaining attached leaves, Clean up the cut stems and debris from the base of the bush to prevent diseases and pests. You want to mulch and fertilize um, in the spring, but not now. And it's been my experience that pruning by early February, my rose garden begins its delightful display of gorgeous new blooms by late March, early April. And it only takes a little bit of care and attention to love and tame our roses because as Antoine de Saint-Exupéry so exquisitely explains, we are responsible for what we tamed. So happy gardening, happy growing, happy February. Let's celebrate the year of the rabbit and let's hop to it. I'll be back from break with a business bite. Stay with me. You're listening to Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Business Bites. Here's Cynthia Bryan. Well, happiness is a choice. So by creating more joy and happiness in your life, you will be a better person, a better employee, and a better employer. Joyful people are optimistic and energetic. And to help yourself on the journey to more fun in the workplace, Write a to-do list every day and at the top right as your number one goal, enjoy myself. Recharge your batteries with enough sleep, a good healthy diet, and many good social interactions. Share positive feelings and accomplishments with your peers. Respect yourself and others and see humor in mistakes and imperfections. Allow yourself to be playful and identify the activities that make you happy. When you are joyful, your enthusiasm will be contagious in the company allowing your bottom line to have more dollar signs. It does take more muscles to frown to smile, so smile a lot. And remember that you are the star of your own performance. Turn your passions into profits. I'm Cynthia Bryan with another business bite from Star Style. For more information, visit CynthiaBryan.com. That's Cynthia Bryan, Bryan with an I. Com. 
The annual cost of illiteracy to American taxpayers is over $225 billion. Help increase literacy, reduce violence, and improve positive media messages by making a tax-deductible contribution to Be The Star You Are charity. A top-rated nonprofit, Be The Star You Are promotes positive role models, produces positive radio broadcasts, and donates positive books to empower women, families, and youth. Be a power partner and join our galaxy of stars. Visit our website at bethestarur.org to make a tax-deductible donation using PayPal or send checks to P.O. Box 376, 376, Moraga, California, 94556. bethestarur.org. Dare to care. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. Well, now we're going to get into some more healthy things, healthy ways, uh, healthy lifestyle, healthy things we can do to um, fight inflammation because uh, what people don't realize is that our food choices can really help counter the effects of inflammation. Inflammation is such a hot topic these days. So many people are suffering from chronic diseases and we are all looking for ways to reduce our risk. And it turns out that diet is a major risk factor for inflammation and chronic disease. So, People are always saying, well, what are anti-inflammatory foods and what should I be eating? Well, first, we probably want to ask the question, what is inflammation in the first place? So acute inflammation is a normal, short-lived response to any injury or infection that repairs tissue or removes infections from the body. Now, chronic inflammation is often milder, but more prolonged and out of control. But chronic inflammation increases your risk of many chronic diseases, such as type 2 diabetes, depression, uh, heart disease, dementia, and many forms of cancer. So poor diet, along with inactivity, inadequate sleep, lots of stress, and the environmental toxins that we're all, all part of, those can form part of the inflammation puzzle. So what can we personally do as far as anti-inflammatory foods? Well, as a general rule, a high diet that is high in natural, unprocessed foods that includes lots of vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, fish, eggs, and beans, that's anti-inflammatory. Your body knows how to process these foods, and these foods are highly nutritious. Now, just for example, talking about uh, seeds and nuts. So there's, there's something, nuts and seeds, are they're just a great snack. They're also great topping for a salad, for dessert, or for breakfast. They're low in carbohydrates. They're rich in micronutrients, in fiber, and in monounsaturated fats. So we have to eat around a handful of nuts and seeds every day. So how could you do that? So one of the things that I started doing, I don't know, a couple years ago, but 
I like it. Um, I On my desk, I have a jar of nuts and seeds. It's almonds and peanuts and cashews and all different kinds of seeds, sunflower seeds. I don't even know what kind of seeds are in here. And I also, I add some raisins to it just to put, or um, our cranberries, just to put a little bit of sweetness in it. So every day, usually around three o'clock or four o'clock when I start to get that slump, I grab a handful. And then in my living room, um, I have a, a bowl of nuts that my husband just goes crazy over all the time. But that's just for anybody, you know, whenever they feel like they need a snack. And I'm just constantly refreshing it. So that is something that everybody can do. And it's just simple. It's just you could just grab a handful. And one handful a day is going to be enough for you. The other thing is eating a well-balanced combination of anti-inflammatory foods provides not only the macronutrients, that would be carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, but also the water and the micronutrients, which are the vitamins and minerals and fiber that are needed to keep your body in tip-top shape. So pro-inflammatory foods would include those that are highly processed, those that have refined sugars, um, refined grains, saturated or trans fats, and of course, anything that has artificial additives. We have to avoid foods that are like french fries, candy, and sweets. I do admit, I really do like french fries, but what I do is I bake, I slice potatoes and I bake them and toss it with a little bit of olive oil and a little bit of sea salt. And I think that's less bad, less, less, inf uh, less inflammatory. So what anti-inflammatory foods should you be eating? And here we go. Besides the nuts and seeds, vegetables and fruits are rich in antioxidants, micronutrients, fiber, and all of those things reduce inflammation. So here are the anti-inflammatory foods that everybody should be adding to their diet. Let's start with vegetables. So vegetables contain carbohydrates and small amounts of protein and healthy fats. And we want to aim for five to nine cups or servings each day, two of which should be raw leafy greens like spinach, kale, collards, uh, arugula, any kind of, you know, dark green leafy green. You need two of those. Fruits. The calories in fruits are mainly carbohydrates. So if you are watching your weight, you have to be aware of eating too much fruit and instead maybe opt for berries or citrus fruits if you can. And it's much better to eat the whole fruit and not to like just try to drink the juice uh, because though that is processed. And you don't want processed foods um, or processed fruits or processed juices. The darker and the more vibrant the color, the more antioxidants a fruit contains. So you definitely want to, you know, cherries, uh, blueberries, blackberries. So think about things that are dark, raspberries, all those kind of berries are very good. Now, fish. Fish is a great source of protein and healthy fats. The best sources are cold water fish, and that includes salmon, tuna, sardines, 
herring, anchovies. These are all high in inflammation-fighting omega-3 fatty acids. It's recommended to eat three to four ounces of fish twice a week, and it is said that that will limit your risk while limiting your exposure to heavy metals. Unfortunately, um, there are heavy metals in the waters today, and so I don't think we can eat fish every day, although I would love that, but it's probably not recommended. If you are keen to prevent or you're suffering from an inflammatory disease, you might want to add a high-quality fish oil supplement. But of course, you always, always um, talk to your doctor first. Fats and oils. Your body, and particularly your brain, needs fat, but just the right kind and not in huge amounts. So olive oil, nut or seed oils, you know, like sesame seed oil, avocado oil, these are the most that are anti-inflammatory. You want to avoid vegetable oils as much as possible because they are typically used to make processed foods. And as I stated already, processed foods are inflammatory. Beans, beans like chickpeas, black beans, red kidney beans, lentils, they're very high in fiber and phytonutrients. And those all reduce inflammation. They're inexpensive, they're excellent source of protein, especially for vegetarians or for vegans, and they're low in the glycemic carbohydrates. If, we, if you can eat at least a cup of beans twice a week, that would really help you. Whole grains. Whole grains can be part of a healthy diet, but you can practice moderation. As they are high in fiber, but they can also uh, cause inflammation. They contain the healthy parts of the cereal grain and it can be a good source of vitamins and minerals, including niacin and thiamine and folate and zinc and iron and magnesium. So you wanna aim to eat six ounces of whole grains each day. Now what that amounts to is about a half a cup of cooked brown rice or one slice of whole wheat bread. So brown rice, oats, and quinoa are also great sources of whole grain. But if you're gluten intolerant, you have to check the label to see if they might uh, contain traces of gluten. Now the nightshade foods, nightshade vegetables, which include tomatoes, eggplant, potatoes, red bell peppers, they are nutritious and anti-inflammatory with minimal calories. However, some people are intolerant and may find these, these foods actually trigger inflammation related to conditions like arthritis. So again, check with your doctor. And if you've had any tests, you know, you've got to know what the tests are. And certain spices have anti-inflammatory properties and they're great to add flavor to your food. Garlic, turmeric, ginger, cinnamon, chilies, cayenne pepper, and they can be added in your food in marinades, in sauces, in salad dressings, rubs. Um, and just like I said, you can use these flavors in the stock that you create. And turmeric is just really great. I add cinnamon to my coffee every morning, and I do add garlic uh, to almost everything, as well as some cayenne pepper. And I love putting ginger. And so then tea and coffee. So coffee, green tea, and black tea contain 
polyphenols and other anti-inflammatory compounds, and they are also good for your health in moderation. But if you struggle with sleep, you need to restrict any uh, caffeinated drinks to earlier in the day. So maybe have those, have any of that before noon, and then after that, you know, drink water or um, drink teas or coffees that are decaffeinated. So hopefully this will help you uh, with some anti-inflammation because we don't want to, um, you don't, you don't want to increase that inflammation, you know, into your lifestyle. We want to lead a very healthy lifestyle. And just remember, move as much as you can, get some exercise, eliminate stress as much as possible. If you can eat with the season, you know, cold weather triggers the desire for warm food, soups, stews, chilies, hot tea. Warm weather triggers the desire for cold foods. So if you eat with the season, that could help also with your inflammation. So this is our show for today. I encourage you to think less and feel more. Ask once and give thanks often. Always expect the best and appreciate everything. Never give up. Make life fun. Laugh a lot. Lead, invent, regroup. And as I said, again, I want you to laugh and to smile and to live your life as if success has happened if it hasn't already because you can change your life and make your dreams come true. For more information about Star Style Productions, or to purchase any of my books, please visit CynthiaBryan.com. For information about Be The Star You Are charity, visit BeTheStarYouAre.org. And we are in our 25th year, so you could make a $25 donation. That would be cool. My aim is always to encourage, inspire, inform, amuse, and motivate you to see beyond your physical being. Know you already are the star you dreamed of becoming. Cherish the past. Dream of the future and celebrate today. And until next week, when we celebrate once again, remember that love always wins, kindness always prevails, and smiles will keep us happy. I'm Cynthia Bryan for Star Style, thanking you and encouraging you to be the star you are. Be your unapologetically authentic self and have fun on Groundhog Day. Until next week, read, lead, succeed. Thanks for joining me. Be the star you are. The star you are. Be the star you are. You are the star. It's been a pleasure bringing you our life-changing program, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We have you on our radar as it's our goal to inspire, inform, entertain, and motivate you to be the star you were born to be. For more information, visit StarStyleRadio.com. And to make a donation to the charity, go to BeTheStarYouAre.org. Ignite the flame that burns brightly within. Take charge of your life and coach yourself to success with our dynamic host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan, every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another serving of champagne for the spirit and a power boost to live with star style. Until we celebrate together next week, be the star you are. Thank you.